Welcome to the May edition of the JNNP podcast. This month we'll be looking at two papers, one on brain microbleeds and the other looking at abusive behaviour by dementia sufferers. Firstly, I'm joined by Dr David Waring. David's a consultant neurologist and a clinical senior lecturer at the Stroke Research Group in University College London. David and his colleagues have published in JNMP this month a paper looking at brain microbleeds as a possible risk factor for antiplatelet-related intercerebral haemorrhage. Now, David, in your paper you hypothesise that microbleeds are a risk factor for antiplatelet ICH. Why was that? Well, we know that um, if you analyse microbleeds as seen on a brain scan um, under the microscope with histopathology, we know that they're associated with cerebral small vessel diseases, including um, hypertensive arteriopathy and cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the case of amyloid angiopathy, the deposition of amyloid in the vessel walls renders the wall of the vessel very uh, brittle and fragile and prone to bleeding. So the increased detection of microbleeds over the last few years on gradient echo MRI scans has led to a great deal of interest in whether they might be associated with an increased risk of bleeding uh, in the brain. And one very obvious thing that neurologists get concerned about when microbleeds are found is whether the microbleeds might predict the risk of bleeding when people take antithrombotic drugs, including antiplatelet agents or anticoagulants. Okay, and then you decided to, to look into that. How did you do that? Well, we thought quite hard about the design um, the ideal study of course would be a prospective design um, but the, the issue with that is that re- brain hemorrhage related to antithrombotic agents is actually rather a rare event so um, a trial of that sort would, would have to be very large um, so the other way of approaching this to look at the association of risk factors with with outcomes of interest is a case control study and this is quite a strong way of looking at rare outcome events. Mm -hmm. So we decided to undertake such a study where our cases were defined as patients who were taking aspirin regularly at the time of an intracerebral hemorrhage and we compared these to a group of controls who had been taking aspirin again regularly but who had no history of intracerebral hemorrhage and we matched um, matched the groups for potential confounds, particularly confounds by indication to take aspirin, which um, include uh, history of stroke and, and so on. So the idea was that this design would tease out the effect of microbleeds on intracerebral hemorrhage related to aspirin um, and try and eliminate these confounding factors. We also included a second group of cases, which were patients with intracerebral hemorrhage but who had not been taking any aspirin prior to having an intracerebral hemorrhage. So it was a combination of a case control study with also a a sub-analysis, which was a case-case comparison as well. Okay, and you also used MRI to look for the position? Yes, all all the patients coming through our stroke service as as routine investigation do get um, MRI, including gradient echo T2 star weighted imaging which is a powerful way to detect microbleeds so all of these patients were only included if they had 
MRI of satisfactory quality, which allowed us to look at the presence um, and distribution of microbleeds as well. We were interested also in the location of microbleeds because um, there is a prevailing hypothesis that microbleeds in the lobar parts of the brain, mainly at the cortico-subcortical junction in the cerebral lobes, are more likely to be due to cerebral amyloid angiopathy compared to deeper microbleeds, which are thought to be more likely to be due to hypertensive arteriopathy. So were both your hypotheses borne out? They were, um, although we have to bear in mind that the absolute numbers of patients with intracerebral hemorrhage was relatively small in this study. Mm. Um, But we did indeed find that, um, first of all, microbleeds were found frequently in people who had been taking um, antiplatelet drugs at the time of their intracerebral hemorrhage. So we found um, 81% of these had uh, microbleeds in the brain compared to a group of matched antiplatelet users um, who had not had any history of brain hemorrhage and only 19% of those uh, had brain microbleeds. So this was statistically significant. We also found that those with um, intracerebral hemorrhage on antiplatelet drugs had uh, microbleeds more frequently than those who had intracerebral hemorrhage unrelated to uh, antiplatelet drugs. Um, With regard to the hypothesis about lobar microbleeds um, and putative amyloid angiopathy, uh, we did find um, an association here as well uh, that was stronger than for deep microbleeds. Um, So uh, bearing in mind the limitations of the study, we did... um, we did find evidence to support uh, our hypotheses, yes. Okay. Now, what would this mean for for clinical practice? What should clinicians take away from this? I do think we must take these results um, with some caution because it is a case control cross-sectional study. And we have to remember that a case control study can never give definitive evidence about causation, really. Uh, which will have to come from prospective studies. Mm -hmm. So I think we must read it with caution, and also the absolute numbers of brain hemorrhages were relatively small in this study. Um, But taking all that in mind, I think it does does support the idea that if if a patient has a large number of lobar microbleeds, this is a potential concern for treatment with antiplatelet drugs and indeed anticoagulant drugs. So... I think this is one more piece of information for clinicians to take into account. Ideally, such patients who are going to be considered for treatment with antithrombotics should be perhaps entered into future prospective research studies, uh, which we are hoping to conduct um, in the near future. And David's research paper is now available online at jnmp.bmj.com. I'm now joined by Dr. Claudia Cooper, who's a senior lecturer in old age psychiatry in the Department of Mental Health Science, again at University College London. Claudia's research this month in JNMP is looking at abusive behaviour experienced by family carers from people with dementia. Now, Claudia, could you kind of give us some background to this? Why was it that you decided to study this? Well, this paper is actually part of a larger MRC-funded study, and the main purpose of which was to look at abusive behaviour by family carers towards people with dementia. 
And now, while we were developing this protocol, one of the team who um, was an ex-family carer herself put it to us that in her experience, often family carers, when they acted abusively, were actually responding to experiencing very similar abusive behaviour themselves, that the person with dementia was perhaps hitting out at them, perhaps screaming and shouting mm-hmm. at them. And sometimes when they were at the end of their tether, they were shouting or striking back. And yet there have been some 50-plus papers looking at um abuse towards people with dementia, but nobody had actually asked the carers about the abuse they might be experiencing themselves. So we decided to do that for the first time in this study. Because mm, it seems like something that people who work with people who have dementia would, would be aware of. It's, it's almost surprising that it's not been studied before. Yes. Well, certainly um, people have um, often talk about aggression by mm. people with dementia, but of course, Abuse is a related concept, but it's also different because it's directed to um, the family carer um, and therefore can feel very very personal and and particularly upsetting. Mm -hmm. So when you say abusive behaviour, you're talking about the behaviour itself, not necessarily the intent. Yes, that's right. In many cases, the person with dementia would not know that the way they were behaving was abusive or perhaps due to increased impulsivity due to the dementia be unable to stop themselves behaving in this way. So we're not implying intent or that they're doing it deliberately, so to speak. But nonetheless, of course, it's very hurtful and difficult for carers to be at the receiving end of this. So who did you look at in the study? Who were your your research group? Well, we recruited um, family carers of people with dementia who were consecutively referred to five different mental health trusts um, in London and Essex. Okay. You went through and you talked to them about what would be going on, the abuse that they'd suffered, and measured that. How did you do that? Well, the main measure that we used in the study was the Modified Conflict Tactics Scale, which is the most common measure used um, for inter-family violence. Generally, it's been used in different settings, such as domestic abuse. It includes 10 different types of abusive behaviour. So we ask about screaming and shouting, threatening, through to being concerned that somebody might harm you, to actually being harmed. And In the larger study, we asked about this two ways round. We said to the carers, first of all, do you ever find yourself acting um, in any of these ways? Mm -hmm. Um, And also, has the person with dementia ever acted in this way towards you? Or has has that happened in in the last three months? So that was measuring abuse. And you also looked at how people rated their relationship with the person they're caring for. Yes, that's right. We asked the carers four simple questions, really, about um, how they rated the relationship, whether or not they felt happy in the relationship, whether or not they enjoyed spending time with the person. And we asked them about two scenarios. We said to them, how did you feel about the relationship before that person became ill? And how have you felt about the relationship in the last three months? Mm -hmm. Um, And overall... The group described, as as one might expect, a deterioration in the quality of the relationship, although that wasn't across the board. Some people actually felt that the caring situation had brought them closer. We're there going into findings, and we'll come back to how people uh, rated their relationships in a bit. But before that, did you find that abuse was quite prevalent? 
Yes, certainly over a third, 37% of family carers reported that um, the person they were looking after was acting in one of these 10 abusive ways at least sometimes. Um, There was actually quite a strong correlation, um, the correlation coefficient was 0.5, so really quite strong between the reports of abusive behaviour towards the carer and by the carer, which certainly does suggest that there is something in the reports that in many cases it's carers reacting when they abuse to um, coping with caring for somebody that's abusing them. Yes. Now, already you've mentioned a a bit about how people rated the relationship, but how did abuse affect that relationship? Did it make the deterioration more marked? There was um, a strong association between experiencing more abuse and um, feeling that the quality of the relationship had deteriorated more. That came across very strongly. And we certainly found that where carers were experiencing more abuse, if they reacted to that abuse by using more, um, what we would say, dysfunctional coping strategies, so sort of things that are ultimately unhelpful to the carer, such as denial or behavioural disengagement, then actually the quality of the relationship declined more. Obviously, there's a limitation in that it's a cross-sectional study, but certainly we, we did demonstrate our hypothesis um, that dysfunctional coping would, would mediate that relationship. Mm. I mean, the results are very interesting, and you, you there mentioned limitations. How applicable is this study beyond the group that you've looked at? We think it is representative of people referred to secondary care, and certainly we took care to include in our five centres urban and rural areas and areas which have a multi-ethnic population and certainly I think the main message from the study is how prevalent first of all these abusive behaviours are and so the message to clinicians is to is to ask about it. We said in our previous paper which looked at abuse by family carers that generally family carers are willing to be asked about this and often want to talk about it mm-hmm. because certainly we can't do anything about this unless we know about it. Um, in many instances abusive behaviour might be a manifestation of neuropsychiatric symptoms, it may be amenable to treatment, it might be that the family need more support. In some cases it's not possible to reduce and stop abusive behaviour such as screaming and shouting completely. And where this is abused by the person with dementia towards the carer, there are situations where the carer, um, despite this, wants to go on caring at home and Mm. the person with dementia wants to stay at home. And this is where our finding with regards to coping strategies comes in because it suggests that if we could... um, give the carers um, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy based um, therapy to change coping style that that might potentially help to reduce the impact on their quality of life and relationships of that of that residual abuse and now we don't know whether that's true but we've gone on now and we're, we're currently um, um, doing a, an HTA funded study um, led by Professor Livingston to look at whether a a manual-based therapy to try and change this, the style of coping carers use could, in fact, reduce abusive behaviour. OK, well, Claudia, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That's all for this month. We'll be back again next month with some more papers from JNMP. Join us then.